This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to helping you become a savvier marketing leader no matter your level. In each episode, we will dive into a relevant topic or challenge that marketing leaders are currently facing. We will also give you practical tools and applications that will help you put what you learn into practice today. And if you missed anything, don't worry. We put worksheets on our website that summarize the key points. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about four business lending mistakes agencies make. You know how we enjoy giving you a peek under the tent, and this is going to be one of those episodes as it draws upon my 20 plus years of working at PNG. And we've highlighted several of these in other episodes, but we think there's power in consolidating them into an episode and giving more examples based on our experiences. And you know, I will, of course, provide some balance and keep Anne honest, and you better believe I will be getting back at her by doing one that flips the perspective, and that one will be coming very soon. So spoiler alert there. But in all seriousness, these episodes are like gold because you're likely not going to hear this feedback from your client, or if you do, it's generally through someone else, from someone on your team, and in a situation like a performance review where it's already too late. Yep. That is true. So hopefully this will help you be a little bit more aware and proactive. But I also want to make the point that these are not necessarily poor performing agencies. You may produce really good work, but still get fired for making one of these mistakes because you can't really hide behind the work anymore. So that's why we're doing this episode. And so let's jump into four business limiting mistakes agencies make. The first one is undermining their client partner. And I speak from a lot of experience on this one, and I can tell you that nothing leads to dysfunctionality faster than going over the head of your client partner. And we talk a lot about the importance of growing a highly functioning team in order to consistently deliver quality work. You can't do this if there's a lack of respect and trust with your client contact. I have fired agencies over this exact one because once the trust is lost, it is very, very hard to regain it. So the way to avoid this is to make sure that you're managing the dynamics within the team, right? If you can, and there's something that comes up that's like, oh, we just as a team can't solve for this, then you as a team decide that you're going to go to a certain third party in order to be able to have that conversation. When you go above and beyond that partner without their consent, you're breaking the cardinal rule of trust. And that is, again, like I said, very, very hard to rebuild. And there's very, very few times when you actually would do that. So you got to be ready for the consequences if you decide to do that. And so what I want to kind of outline based on my experience, and I know April's going to chime in here, is some of those situations where you may feel that you've been justified, but I'm going to give you the insider's look into what actually is happening on the client side when you do that and how it doesn't necessarily reflect well on you. And I would doubt that it actually has ever been successful for you. Yeah. And real quick, before we get into that piece here, I just want to say that on the agency side, I think you have to be careful, even if it's not if you don't have the intent of going above and beyond the person's head, because we've talked before about Mm -hmm. how emotions run high in agencies and egos are large. So 
if you are, let's say, the account lead on the team and you mention that there's an issue, just be careful about how and what you say and to whom, because I've been part of situations where someone on the team says, oh, I had a rough call with so-and-so and the game of telephone begins, right? And all yep. of a sudden... The owner of the agency is calling their lead person at the client, and it's something that, like Ann said, you can't undo, and you very well may be fired for, or at the very least, even if the relationship continues, you're always going to be at that disadvantage because your client partner isn't going to trust that that isn't going to happen again. Right. And we're going to get into why that's the case here through some of these situations. Yeah. One of the first rationales um, that the agency has for circumventing their client partner is the agency wants to develop a relationship with senior management to set themselves up for a strong performance review and or to get more work. And the reality here is it's generally not the senior manager who is leading or writing your performance review. It's usually your client partner. That's at least where it starts. So the point that you want to be making the relationship with is with that client partner, because that is a person who will be advocating for you. That is a person who is going to be expressing whether or not they want to continue with you as an agency or not. It's also the 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 impetus for actual conversation to happen about you with others within the company. I was a client leader on a lot of my agencies, and I was able to get work from my agency with other people with MP&G because I had the firsthand experience of the work. It wasn't my boss or my boss's boss that was able to get them that work. It was because I was able to go and advocate for them and say, hey, they did a fabulous job here. They're really the experts here. This is how they work. You should take a look at them. And that's where usually the point of entry is for agencies. Sometimes it happens if you're able to have really good relationships up at the top and is able to funnel through, but usually it does not work well for a couple of reasons. One, it takes way too long to drill down to that level. And second, when you get to that level, everybody below that is really resentful of the fact that now they've been forced an agency that they didn't actually necessarily want or advocate for. A second rationale is agencies want senior management to overrule decisions being made at the team level. Back to what I was saying before, in reality, most cases, those senior managers defer to the teams that are actually in the work to make the decisions. So trying to undo a decision already made by going to a senior manager really creates a lot of lot of drama, and that almost always reflects poorly on the agency. All right, And this also happens when agencies want to talk to the senior managers because they're trying to run a certain agenda. And so what they listen for is something that the senior manager is saying, and then they take that, and then they abandon the whole entire brief, and they go and they run with that. And then when the work comes back and your client partner is looking at it, they're like, what the heck happened here? And they said, well, so-and-so, your boss said this. And you're like, oh my gosh, as a client partner, that's awful because then you have to go back and have to undo everything. And when I can tell you 95% of the time, and I went back to my boss or my senior manager and I said, when you said this, this is what the agency heard. Please don't say anything else <laughs> like that. You know, Please only you know, uh, reinforce the brief. The senior manager was like, oops, sorry, I made a mistake, and then retracted everything. Mm -hmm. So all the work was wasted because the senior manager went back and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was going outside the brief. That is my bad. Why don't you guys manage it and then bring it to me when it's ready? 
which is the, another one of these, which is agencies want senior management to see all the work, not just what the client partner wants to show them, because they believe if the if the actual senior manager sees it, then they have a little bit more control of it. And what I constantly heard from my <laughs> my agency partners was like, well, I feel like you rule out some of the work before we even get them to see it. And, you know, these are ideas that we're really passionate about. And these are ideas that's like, well, that's fantastic, except for your client partners know senior managers better than you do, right? So you need to listen to them. If they say, this is not the right idea to take to them, this is not ready to take to them, you really need to respect the fact that they understand that dynamic because if you don't respect that, they can't advocate for you in those meetings. And that can go really, really poorly as well, especially if you decide you don't want your client partner to see any of the work before it gets to the senior manager. Then that even puts them in a worse position because then they're like, um, I'm seeing it for the first time too. I'm going to give my feedback the same that I would give it if I was seeing it with you without my manager. All right, so those are some things you have to really understand and think about from the work standpoint. The final rationale I'll say here is that don't use a senior management to manage your client partner. It's kind of what we said at the very, very beginning about how that really erodes the trust. The reality is if you somehow blame or make your client partner look bad, they will go into a CYA mode. So that is going to be their mode. That's their defense mode. You better believe their credibility or their integrity is is actually put into any kind of question. They're going to throw you underneath the bus so dang quick, <laughs> your head's going to spin because they're not going to lose in that situation. Yes. And I would say, you know, on the agency side, right, I've seen this happen quite often. So there's a lot of credibility to all the points that Anne made here. And I think the reason it happens, right, is because we have gotten burned before. There have been situations where it wasn't the right client partner, but that doesn't mean that you then go and blanket that experience or transfer that experience to every other experience that comes after that. And so I think if, you know, on the agency side, if you're the account lead or the creative lead or whatever your role is on the team as the team lead, you have to be able to, one, look at things from a place of objectivity to assess what's really going on in the situation. And then number two, I think if on the agency side, we spent more time building a proper relationship with the client lead versus being nervous or unsure Mm -hmm. about what is going to come. And obviously, you know, if you've been burned, you're you're gun shy, or if you've had a client partner where some of these things have happened and it's been right, where it's like, well, you know, this person said we couldn't show any of this work and then we got the final concept in front of senior management and they weren't happy and we knew that there were things on the floor now that would have answered some of those questions, right? So it's not to say that there isn't the reality that this stuff does happen, but I think my perspective would be that when a situation like this happens and it goes wrong, then that becomes the concern for all future work and in my experience, there are a couple of those out there and 75% plus of the rest of them where you could avoid all of the things and uh-huh. just said if you would just take the time to understand 
your client's role, your client's motivation, what they're looking to do and achieve and work with them collectively on that. And like Ann said, then that client lead is happy. They're going to refer you to other areas of the business. They're going to refer you to potentially other clients. And guess what? Those referrals are going to be more in line with the positive relationship you have with the client lead in those accounts instead of some of this PTSD baggage of something that went wrong. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I want to express, I know this happens. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know, like, clients go bad. They, like, they aren't as smart as they should be. Um, They're maybe they're not as savvy as they should be. Um, When things don't go right, they throw the agency under the bus. Anyway, I totally understand that there's an integrity issue or there could be an integrity issue on the client side as well. But I like what you said, April, is that it shouldn't be the automatic assumption. It shouldn't be the knee-jerk reaction that like, oh, I didn't get my way. So you know what? I'm going to go around my my client Mm -hmm. lead and I'm going to have a conversation with their boss or I'm going to try to find a way to push this through in a different way in order to suit my own agenda, which is I think tends to be sometimes the PTSD kind of reacting Mm -hmm. like, oh, no, I'm not going through this again. Or I remember how this was where really all it needs is some relationship formulation of expectations of sometimes it's the language um and we're going to get to that a little bit later where the language is just off and so those are things you need to diagnose and understand first mm-hmm. before you decide that you're going to go to this route because i can tell you it almost always does not reflect well on the agency yeah and i mean there's just so much transference in the agencies anyway right oh we've been here before we've seen this before we've done this before we've been in this position before and so what i'm clearly trying to state is you got to make sure that it's real and also that it's a pattern that's consistently happening which means you have to give the relationship enough time to build and grow to say okay, this is actually the truth of what's happening versus, to your point, I've been here before. Oh, no, no, I'm not going through it again. So I'm going to do everything bad behavior-wise that the client's not going to like because I'm trying to protect myself. Yep, absolutely. All right. The second business limiting mistake agencies make is they fail to learn the client's business. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, I've always said the best agencies work as extensions of myself, and these are the agencies that I've always appreciated, which means they really, truly understand the business and the extent that they can proactively work within it. This includes being a student of the industry, a, belie- uh, a student of the function, understanding marketing dynamics, know how the business makes money, being clear on the challenges and what keeps people up at night. This also means understanding your client partner in much of the same way so that you can proactively and without direction be of service to them. So this means understanding their motivations, how they get rewarded, the way they like to work, what keeps them up at night as well. (laughs) So all those things that help you become a better partner, as April was alluding to, and how to create those relationships. Because this, and creating those relationships and the partnerships, is a differentiating factor versus having a transactional relationship that is all about deliverables for money. That is a commodity in today's day and age. You do not want to be a commodity. There is a tremendous amount of agencies out there that can do what you're doing and do it well. To assume that what you're doing is somehow in an accelerated or quality-based product or service that others don't have is really just not honoring the fact that in creating relationships, that is where the value happens. When you create those that emotional connection and the necessity to be it becomes about needing you and just you, that is where the gold is, right? So 
need to keep that in mind that learning the business is key to understanding your client, understanding how to help your client in the best way in order to create the most value. But don't go overboard on the onboarding. It needs to be appropriate for the size and scope. I see agencies kind of swing back the other way where they're like, okay, then I need to know everything. I'm like, I need to talk to all these people. I need all the details. Really think about what you actually need in terms of scope, in terms of context, in terms of history, those sorts of things that get you up to speed enough to be able to do the work and start the work. This is what goes in your brief. Be very, very intentional about what goes in your brief. Yes, and I, of course, have a few things to add here. Number one, I've never seen a client get mad if you're asking them a question because you're trying to learn about their business. And I say that because too many times I think the agency puts the onus on themselves to fake it till they make it. We've talked about that on other episodes. Or assume too much or... I said just before, try to transfer experiences from other situations and put them on top of of other clients' businesses. And I also think that it gets a little bit tricky on the agency side because we have, quote unquote, our day job, right? We have to create the deliverables that the client wants. We have to grow organic business on these accounts. We have to bring in new business. So there's the business we're in, but then on the other side, there's the client's business. And I very honestly saw too many times where the client's business sort of fell to the wayside or was oversimplified or was even stated as, well, that's not really part of our job. That's what they need to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. But the most successful client relationships and and very honestly where agencies are going to succeed today and is, is in really digging in and getting to know and understand the business. Because like Anne said, that mention of being proactive or assisting without having to be told, that's really where the important thing is. And over time, Mm -hmm. over time, you can get to a point where you have been so far in so many businesses that you see trends coming and you know you can pull this from what you know before, but it's a lot of hard work to get there. And the other last piece I will say is that There are people that I believe are either made to serve this role in an agency or can be taught and can do sort of the more analytical understanding of business and how marketing and branding and advertising overlap on top of it. But you have to be really intentional with those people because if you have a team that doesn't have that person or a collective ability to understand, that's where this frustration, I feel like, so often would come out. And as someone, at the risk of showing ego here, (laughs) who felt like I was always like, oh, I can see what's coming next because we didn't do X, Y, and Z on the agency side, this can be a really easy one to miss, and it is a fatal mistake, which is the point of this episode. Yeah, and, I, and I'll give an example. Like, I see this a ton with social media agencies, right? <laughs> yep. So they'll show up and they'll be like, oh, this is what works well on Instagram. I'm like, okay, so what works well on Instagram within this industry mm-hmm. then? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, because what works in beauty mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily work over in a, another CPG product, nope. right? It's a different context. It's different expectations. The consumer is looking for different things. 
sometimes in our efforts to kind of streamline our business, we forget that there's nuances when it comes to those things. So if you show up and just say, hey, there's a one-trick pony that's going to solve all your needs, Mm -hmm. that is not compelling for anybody on the other side who actually understands that that is total BS. Yeah. Right? And we see it all the time. We see it like, we're going to get, you know, a thousand or 10,000 or a million eyeballs on this by doing this. It's like, well, have you been successful for doing that within this industry that we're in? Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to articulate how you're going to go about doing that. Not necessarily the fact that you have done it. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes that's really nice and that's really important. We've talked about that before, but how you would do that. And what in that, you know, understand the nuances, you understand the industry. It was like, well then, no, we haven't done exactly for this, but we know what we know about your industry is this and this and this. So we would tweak that in order to be able to more um, directly appeal to your consumer target. Show some insight that you have thought about it. That Mm -hmm. helps people understand that even though you haven't had the exact work in their industry, that you are able to translate your knowledge, your understanding, your talent to their industry. Yeah, and that's what I mean about asking the right question. So to give another example, and I'll tag on to the social media piece, but regulations in social media have gotten to be a big Mm -hmm. deal, like what you can post, what you can share, et cetera, et cetera. So we ran into this with a real estate client. And then when we got, you know, fast forward, there was a lending client that came up. And so it was like, okay, well, I know if if this was regulated, that's definitely regulated. And so first call with that client, it was like, okay, I we have not worked in your business before, to your point, Anne. Yeah. However, we know that there's this group of regulated industries and that it's ramped up more than ever before. And so therefore, talk to me about that and also know that if we don't feel like we can serve you based on those, we're going to tell you that. And so mm-hmm. I think sometimes companies and agencies and people are afraid to admit what they don't know versus taking knowledge they have and using that to be smart in what they're asking. I think that's a really, really good point. And by the way, we didn't get that client. No, because we turned it down. We said we can't can't do that. Yeah, because of the way that they wanted us to structure the work. We're like, "Mm, not sure that that's going to work for you. And it's not in our wheelhouse to be able to to do it the way that you wanted to do it. And we said, I'm sorry, it's just it's not, not us. us. It's not us. Yep. So that's really hard to do sometimes. And But sometimes you have to do it for the integrity and the credibility of your agency. Yep. So the third business limiting mistake agencies make is they don't work well with other agencies. This one made me chuckle. I know. And then almost cry. But, but you I'm know still it's, laughing. You know I'm right. <laughs> I, I'm not saying you're not right. All right. So I wouldn't have let you said this if I I just say, say April, this April looked over this whole entire thing. So I'm, <laughs> and she got to provide her feedback and she gets to provide her commentary. I just have a little button here that I buzz her every time she does mm. something and she gets shocked, but that's okay. <laughs> but, but, and, and seeing this one about really not working well with other agencies, I, I'm sure there's a lot of clients who are kind of like, you know, nodding their heads and like, oh, yeah, AORs, right? Your yep. agency of records. And there's so many, so many reasons why this could be the case. Um, and I'm not going to go into all of them. You you know what I'm talking about here. Speaking directly to the AORs, your failure to recognize the value of other agencies who are also on the business creates a lot of drama internally for your client partner. I can't say that any clearer. And if there's a theme that you're hearing through all of these, it's about creating drama for your client partner. That is one thing that is most emotional, time-sucking, draining thing that somebody needs to do on the client side, and they shouldn't have to, is managing agency dynamics. 
So don't make them waste their time doing that. <laughs> they should be focusing on how to best move the business. Because if I have to be focusing on how to get agency A and agency B to work together in order to do this process, they're not thinking about how do I best enable the work in totality, mm-hmm. right? Now, here's the reality of the situation. If they felt one agency was capable of doing all the work, they would have hired one agency to do it, mm-hmm. right? They have multiple agencies for a reason. So don't waste their time trying to pitch for work that someone else already has and is already doing. Do your job, do your job well. Now, if there's a time later that you want to have that conversation outside the work in a different context, then have that conversation. But don't always make it a point every time you're doing the work. Because working well with other agencies not only demonstrates you're collaborative, you're confident, you know it's in your wheelhouse, but it also demonstrates that you have the best interests of the business in mind, not just yourself. When you're constantly trying to pitch yourself every single turn, it feels like it's all about you. So it's really important that you actually get a lay of the land, understand the dynamics. That means you need to get to know these agencies (laughs) so that you can actually collaborate with them, understand where their strengths are, understand what their weaknesses are, not necessarily to undermine them, but in better utilization of them, all right? And then be the person who actually comes to the table with the best work based on utilizing the agencies to their best of their abilities. So also means... Like I said, be inclusive, be collaborative, but give credit where credit is due, but be the steward of the process. And I had this issue all the time when I was at P&G, and I don't know why, especially it's there's an there's a explicit dynamic between creative agencies and PR agencies. And I don't think it, it was ever solved for, and I still don't think it has been, which I've never understood. So if you were just looking at what's best for the business, what's best for the business, and actually the work in general is to make the work as big as it possibly can. PR helps do that. They also come through the work through a lens of pool and earn media, which actually helps generate word of mouth and generate all this conversation that we want around the creative or the push work that we're doing. I don't understand. Maybe April, you do. I don't understand why AORs specifically are so hesitant to actually engage PR. And I'm sure now with all the other agency proliferations we have, I could probably say the same thing about social agencies and media agencies and everything else that's part of the uh, the agency repertoire. Yeah, I mean, very specific to PR. I think that one for me, historically, was always looked at as they do something different than we do and we don't understand it. So we're not going to like mm-hmm. delve into that because there aren't very many agencies that will say we can do PR. And I think it just like it got put over here as like this black box that wasn't applicable to the work we were doing. And I didn't understand it either once you and I partnered up and I actually got to like unbox it <laughs> and understand, <laughs> you know, this is what actually happens here and this is how it should go and whatever so like that one i i think was just kind of an unemotional they sit over here and they do something different and we don't offer that and that's where we draw the line and i don't have a better answer than that that's just what i saw at every agency i was at yeah i saw a lot too on the other side with the aor stuff i think that this is really a symptom of every agency wanting to be able to say we can do it all yeah And when you got named as that top agency, which 
when AORs were a really big thing, it was often the one that had the most dollars, right? Which meant it was the media agency. And so for someone like me who was on the fill in the blank retail packaging brand strategy, whatever side of things, I think there was a sensitivity from that AOR that they didn't necessarily do or weren't able to evaluate the credibility or the uh, the work we were doing in general. And so it was like, we're going to kill that and just go with the thing that we understand the most, which wasn't mm. always the right solution. And so then I think for us at the creative agency, it became a battle of how can we almost like trick them and sell in the right solution, but then also at the same time get credibility that that was ours instead of the, and so like the dynamics, you're right, they're really bad. And I can't tell you how many times in the bad ones that we had to call the client, call a timeout, have these conversations and I think it goes so far to distraction, and I knew it was a frustration for the client, right? It, mm-hmm. it was like, this is not the the reason that we hired all of you guys. You need to learn to play together. You need to learn to work together. Go have a happy hour. I mean, there were so many different things, right? But at the end of the day, I think because it was, we all overlapped at some point, but instead of saying, this is our expertise, this is the reason we were hired, this is the work we are doing, and you are doing this, and you are doing this, and you are doing this, it was a fight and take my toys and go over here and try to sell myself directly to the client. And so I think that especially now where you have some of these other agencies popping up, I think at least there are more agencies saying no, we don't do that. We need a partner. And so the partnerships are being forced a little bit more. But I think historically, it was just so much drama and infighting across the teams and pushing to try to get your work through that lead agency so that the client could see it and know it was yours, that it became less about the work and more about the fighting. Yeah. And I and that is right on. And I, I would just sit there and I would just say all the time, I'm like, oh my God, we are all adults. Why in the heck are we having such a hard time having these conversations, collaborating, and just to build on what you were saying about like, you know, the AOR specifically wanting to demonstrate that they can do everything. I also feel like their whole identity is wrapped up in what they think that they're good at and what they think they're good at are the things. Yeah. Right. So it has, it's the creative and it's like, you know, and, and those sorts of things. So Again, creative being a very ambiguous word that for some reason now means everything Mm -hmm. regarding branding and marketing versus, hey, we're really good at coordinating multiple agencies in order to deliver the best work. You have to change what you are good at, what you think you're Mm -hmm. good at. Now, that doesn't mean that you abandon the work and you then don't have anything to say about the kind of work you do because I know – the work is also important for mm-hmm. agencies. I mean, the, we talked about that before, you know, getting awards, getting recognition for the work. I, I get that that's important. But what you are putting the value on, what you're selling to the client has to be beyond the work. It has to be success in the way that the client sees it, not the way that you see it. Yeah. And I, I think, too, I will say the last agency that I worked at, we would say that we were collaborative and we really honestly were. I mean, On the flip side of this, it was all the things that we said were the problems. We just didn't 
play into that. And then we looked for partners that wouldn't play into that, right? So mm. we would bring people to the table and say, we don't do, like for a long time, we didn't have media in-house. And then eventually we did move it in-house. But it was like, these are our preferred partners. If you don't want to work with them, that's fine. We already know how to work together. But we will come in and work with any of your partners if that's the better way to do it. And we started very honestly from that perspective. And then I remember that when we decided to start a media team, we went to the clients and asked their opinion on it, right? Like, do you think this is a good idea? Is this something you would buy into? Here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it easier on you. We're trying to bring it in the house. What concerns do you have? And so it was collaborative, not only from the agencies we worked with, but also with the clients when we were deciding whether or not to add something on. And so it was done very pragmatically with a lot of thoughtfulness, not just saying, hey, we can do that too, knowing we don't really have expertise in it, not wanting to partner with the other agency, and then trying to fight our way into work that we had no business doing. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the fourth business limiting mistake that agencies make is taking feedback to you personally. So on the one hand, you want agencies to be invested in the work. We just talked about that. It's really, really important understanding the business, uh, being able to really be in it. So I acknowledge that, and it is very important. But on the other hand, it (laughs) needs to be some level of detachment enough to be able to accept feedback about the work without it feeling like it's a reflection on you. So many agencies, and we got in these conversations a lot, would say, hey, just give it to us straight. We just really want to know what you think. I mean, and so when we would do that, though, there wasn't a lot of reception for <laughs> the direct feedback that we would give, you know, especially if we were like, you know, that just really missed the mark, or I don't think that delivers on the brief, or we think you need to go back to the drawing board. So a lot of times this triggered the circumventing, like we talked earlier, or just created a lot of like ill feelings within mm-hmm. the team to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of questions about like, well, then how do you manage receiving the feedback in a collaborative way from the agencies in order to try to avoid this feelings of like really personal hurt when somebody mm-hmm. doesn't like your work? So here's here's some of my thoughts on this. And I'm going to ask April to, to build from her perspective as well. Sure. Um, one is expect that there will be feedback. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think that when we do the work, we're like, oh, it's so perfect. They should love it. There shouldn't be no feedback whatsoever. You should expect that there's going to be some things that are not well received. And they shouldn't be if you're pushing the realm of conventional thinking, which all agencies in this day and age really should be. Always deliver against a brief. But if you feel the brief is a little bit limiting, deliver something that's stretching the thinking, Okay. Share your why without being defensive. Sometimes the clients just need to see it through a different lens. I mean, like I said, clients are becoming a little bit savvier of marketers, but that doesn't always mean that their lens is like the one true lens for which that you need to look through the work. And sometimes when they hear it in a little bit of a different perspective, especially if you're coming to it through a consumer customer target lens like they would be, it could resonate a little bit differently. So don't get defensive. Just explain a little bit of the why and and why this this idea or this piece of work uh, resonated with you to, with the intent that hopefully it could resonate with them. I would say not to fall in love with the work, but I think that might be a little bit tone deaf. I feel <laughs> like that continued to be um, 
a really tough one is that, and we always sensed it because when the creatives would be sharing the work, they'd start laughing about the work. And we're like, we don't know what the joke is yet. Does anybody get the joke? And they're laughing and they're having them like, so you could tell the ideas that they really, really loved. And it's heartbreaking to say, I'm sorry, we don't see it the same way you do. So I would say try not to fall in love, but I understand that um, everybody does. So that's one of those instances where you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth a little bit there, Anna. We want all the creative work. We want you to be invested. We want you to love it, but we don't need to love it too much. Yes, I, I, I'd <laughs> say it. with all honesty, it is speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but I think it's like the idea of falling in love with it so much yeah. that there is no room for yep. conversation around it, or you think that it's always a personal attack on your ability to do creative work. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's really to the point of taking feedback too personally. So yeah. I, I'm just picking at you. But. I know you are. <laughs> That's why I'm defending myself. <laughs> so another way that you can manage the feedback is to use the brief to guide the convo. So it is more objective than subjective. And ask thoughtful questions based on the brief. This is where you can hold your client's feet to the fire a little bit. So you say things like, hey, the brief said you wanted a breakthrough idea. This was our solution for that. Help me understand why this isn't resonating. Is it not breakthrough enough? Is it too breakthrough? And then call out the client's inconsistencies. I mean, I get it. I was there. So I understand that there are inconsistencies because once they start seeing things, it starts triggering, oh, well, if that's how they internalized it, I'm not sure if that was right or wrong, right? So call that out. Say, okay, so what I'm hearing is that maybe we can't co quite go there because we run the risk of alienating this consumer. Are you then saying you don't want to lean as heavy into this consumer? Um, or, you know, is your mind changed? Like, Call those things out so that you can have that conversation in a very proactive way, right? But at the end of the day, and this is a hard thing, I think, sometimes for agencies to really uh, just embrace is that you're being hired by the client to do the work, right? At the end of the day, it's their call. So don't ignore the feedback. Um, I've had that happen too, where they're just like, oh, you were serious about that? I'm like, yeah, I, I was serious. I kind of said it. I kind of wrote it down in an email. They gave it to you. Um, but you have every right to ask for clarity and call a timeout if you think things are just going way off the, the brief or, or way too far down a rabbit hole. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I poked it in about this one. I, I think this is actually a really, really hard thing in the client agency dynamic because historically – after we left that sort of Mad Men era where the creatives had this like magical thing that no one else could make, right? Right. I don't think that the agency model ever recovered from that going away. And so there became yeah. a disparity in the, the client being above the agency and the agency being treated and perceived more as a vendor. And so I think that agencies started to be on their heels more and they lost that control of the thing they had that nobody else was able to do. And so I think what resulted then, you know, fast forward all these years later is a couple of things. Number one, I don't think all creatives learn how to present, let alone argue back effectively. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that as a slight at all. I say that as something that I see that's broken. And I think the other piece of that is that the way that 
a lot of creatives define themselves is through the work that they do, which is why I poked back at Anne, right? But I think that if we can have these types of feedback conversations from a strategic place, and that was the role that I was always trying to play, which which are the things that Anne talked about, like, don't be afraid to go back to the brief. Don't be afraid to say, mm-hmm. but we heard you say this and this is in direct competition to what you said the last time. Those conversations and those comments and that type of pushback are not only appropriate, but they will effectively get the work to where it needs to be and take out, I think, some of that sting on the agency side right. around the comments around the work. Now, I will also say there are some clients that can just be mean. There are people that can just be mean, that are having a bad day, that are having a bad life that are having a bad job situation and it gets taken out on the agency because, again, back to my comment about feeling and being like the vendor. But that doesn't give you the right to play the victim. And I think that that is where things get really, really tricky and can fall off really fast. And so it was always my goal to start and end from a strategic place and not to say that things don't get off track, but it's everything from prepping whoever's going to make the presentation. And then if they're not the ones that are going to be able to do the back and forth, who is it in the room that's going to take that on? Really kind of almost scripting and practicing what we thought might happen in those rooms to build people's ability to do things, to be able to take feedback, like you said, to be able to be in those rooms and mature and grow in every person's individual role so that there wasn't so much anxiety every time we entered into those mm-hmm. types of meetings. Because I think that's the other piece is there's so many nerves and I have to share this with the client and what if they hate it and all these things play in your head as you're on the way to those meetings. And so I think objectivity and then the strategy of the brief and, okay, it's fine if you get hit with the initial like, oh, that, that hurt, you know, but then think about the rationale of why you created the work you did. And it's not meant to be a fight, but it is like Anne said, okay, well, this was how I solved for X client that we were focusing on in the brief. Did I solve that the wrong way? Is there additional insight you can provide? Are there other things that I missed with this solution? So that it's not so much of like a getting beat on (laughs) perception and it's a productive conversation in the room. Because you're right. It would always be stated, just give it to us straight. Just give it to us straight. But number one, that's not an easy place for anyone to be in, let alone the creatives who created it. Yeah. But number two, that's not actually true. So... Yeah, and I think you, you made a really great point, especially um, about the the victim mentality that can happen because I, I saw that so many times. It's like, okay, there was so much energy when the, when the agency came and shared the work the mm-hmm. first time, right? Yep. But the second time, the energy level kind of drops and the motivation, the inspiration kind of drops. And then, heaven forbid, there's a third round and then it drops even further. Mm-hmm. And I know it's hard, but I'm like, how do you maintain that energy level, that motivation, that inspiration, that even though if there's feedback and there's, you know, there's more rounds of work, that it doesn't feel like it's gut-wrenching or you're stabbing mm-hmm. in the heart every single time you're coming back to come through it again and, and try to make it better. It mm-hmm. should feel like it's going up. Like everybody should feel like, hey, we're converging on something. And I know it sometimes doesn't feel like that for the agency because um, maybe they don't get to go with, with the idea that they really wanted. Yeah. Or maybe it feels like, oh, we're just going to go back to there again. Why don't we just start there? So I understand. And that's why you have to go back and use the brief. 
But I, I really hope that in this day and age, we're to your point about, you know, we're not in the madman area anymore, that we can figure out new processes that really motivate our team to feel like, okay, the second round of work is just going to make things better. I'm very excited about going in and, and iterating it because we could see that too on the client side. And that's sometimes what affected our feedback because we felt like, God, if we said that to them again, like they're going to be so demotivated, but it shouldn't be like that. Like, And so, again, I think success needs to be tied to something that's bigger and broader than just the work itself. Because if it's just about the work itself, I can see how people are going to feel like, I just suck at this mm-hmm. versus like, oh, OK, well, my job is to create work that really moves the business forward. OK, so they didn't think that this was going to be OK. Then what's the next, you know, what what is going to and the feedback helps me refine that and be better. So yeah. my craft, I, I it, it's such a hard thing, but it, you're right. It is take a, a total shift in mindset that it just we haven't seen yet. Well, and we used to talk about it as the difference between art. And creative, right? Right, and I will say very honestly that as a designer, I had no desire to go through the rounds and rounds of revisions. Like, I wanted to create the big idea, and then I wanted to walk away from it. Yeah, and I think that that can be part of it too. The other thing I will say is that even the language we use to evaluate work, in my mind, is broken. Like we talk about, for example, killing concepts. Oh, if you're the yeah. designer of that concept, right? That's like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> that one's not good enough to make it. That might, you know. And so I, I think that the conversations just need to be more oriented to the reasons we're doing this, what we're trying to achieve. And I think your point's also right about staying motivated because there's nothing worse than getting to round 36 and being like, where the heck are we now? You right. know? And, and so to me, very truly, I believe that if these conversations could happen between all parties in the same room in a manner that things are said and things are received, it would make things go so much faster, so much better. People would stay motivated. The work would happen quicker. But it's definitely a very broken thing between those two relationships. Yeah, and in the collaborative nature of how you do that, where it's not like the agency takes the brief, goes off for like three months and yeah. brings it back work. And then they're like, we've been working on this for three months. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe you should be working on it for four weeks. Share where your mindset is. Mm-hmm. We can help to kind of refine that together. And then, you know, you go back. And so it's a little bit more of a streamlined and efficient process. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Just a recap. Four business limiting mistakes agencies make. Undermining their client partner. Nothing leads to dysfunctionality faster than going over the head of your client partner. Fail to learn the client's business. I've always said the best agencies work as an extension of myself, which means they understand the business to the extent that they can proactively work within it. Third, don't work well with other agencies. Even if you are the AOR, failure to recognize the value of the other agencies who are also on the business creates a lot of drama internally for your client partner. And finally, take feedback to you personally. Agencies should be invested in the work, but detached enough to accept feedback. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. 
All right, our next segment is the Into Trenches segment where we give real-world examples specific to industries or situations but with broad application so that all of you guys can digest and put them into action right now. All right, the first one. What are the circumstances by which you have fired an agency? So <laughs> I'm just going to go right at it. <laughs> right at it because I know that's what everybody's thinking, okay? So obviously I can't give specifics, but let me give you some themes. And you've heard some of those themes already, and you've heard me actually say this specifically. And the first one is broken trust, right? So can't work as a functional team if the trust is broken. So once I got to that point where I'm like, I I can no longer trust my agency, to me, the bell had been rung, and it was just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. Second, fail to deliver. And this is based on whatever success looks like, okay? And this is why it's so important. You need to have a very clear parameter, objective, analytic, whatever it looks like that actually establishes success between you and your client partner. Because what you think looks like success, what they think looks like success can be very, very different. This is a big one that I remember is when we were talking about PR and we talk about impressions, A lot of agencies would say, well, I delivered like 3 billion impressions. And the client would be like, what did that have anything to do with my business? And the PR agency would be like, I don't know, but we delivered 3 billion impressions. That's pretty damn good. (laughs) So you need to make sure that the success is clear and everybody understands that and everybody's aligned to that. Next is lack of experienced talent. And this happened on a couple of different cases. One, sometimes it's in a bait and switch where they bring the A team. And then all of a sudden, when you actually get in the work, it's the, the C team. Right. So that never goes over well. Sometimes it's just like the managers talked a good game or the people who were pitching the work talked a good game, but the talent actually couldn't produce. And this usually came from what April said is like they promised a lot of things, mm-hmm. but then couldn't like actually deliver on them or didn't have the talent that actually delivered on them. A third one was an agency turnover. We saw that a lot. If we were constantly trying to train new agency people, it was like, okay, my work can never go forward. Right. Um, And that happens on the client side, too. I understand NFL was like one of our most popular projects for new ABMs. And the agency would say, we've had, you know, seven different ABMs on this project in two years. We cannot get ahead of it. Understand that, too. And that's something that you should bring up to your client partner if you're seeing that on their side. And then finally, and this one's a little bit harder to define, but it's complacency. And this is no longer striving to bring fresh or new ideas. I mean, this is why sometimes it's customary or it's just kind of internally ingrained in companies that we just change our agency out every couple of years because agencies tend to kind of fall into the rut where it's like, oh, well, we know what you want. We're just going to give you what you want. And then we're going to go forward. And I understand that that's as much the client's fault sometimes as it is the actual agency's fault. But again, I go back to the fact that that client is hiring you to do the work. The onus is on you to keep it fresh and interesting. Yes, the client needs to be able to be open to those things. Sometimes it's not within the work itself. Sometimes it's, hey, you know, we had some, as you had mentioned, April, we see some trends coming. We'd like to sit down and share some of the trends we're seeing and Mm -hmm. see if this applies to any of the work, right? So it's just refreshing the, the slate every once in a while. And and that also keeps your creative team fresh, quite honestly. And keeps them interested in something else, especially if they're feeling kind of drunk down by the work, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so I can give some examples of when we were fired without getting specific. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I talked at length in the previous uh, point about 
what I think is wrong and the inability to communicate. And so I think one of the things that was always a failure was trying to impose the way we worked on top of a client. Yeah. Or saying, we know best, or this is the way we do this, and being inflexible in that way. Like going away for three months and coming back with work? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that just never, ever went well. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the digital world we're in on this podcast and the fact that things change all the time and that there's less pressure to get it exactly right, nor do you ever get it exactly right the first time right. around. I really do believe that collaboration is the new king in the agency corporate relationship if you have a real trusting relationship, because then that collaboration happens from the right place of respect and understanding everyone's in it together and wanting to do the right work and all of those types of things. But I can't tell you how many times we got fired because we said, this is the way we do this. And they were like, well, that's not what we want. And then the mm -hmm. partnership or lack of partnership just kind of goes down the drain. The other thing I will say is, it's really hard on the agency side to resource. And mm -hmm. I mean that through a million different lenses, the right people on the right projects, having enough people for the business, especially if you're a project-based agency and your pipeline goes up and down, it can be hard to know how many people to have on staff. Yeah. Yeah. There are instances like healthcare where if you can find people that have worked in that business, they can work faster and more efficiently. But with that said, there aren't always a lot of them or they're burnt out from working on it. So there's all kinds of different things that happen. But overall, I would say we got in trouble and got caught a lot of times where we didn't have the right amount of people on a job or the right people on a job. And then when we would go to deliver, it completely missed the mark. And it was just very clear that it was based on who was working on the business. Mm -hmm. And then really, honestly, the other thing that happens is distraction. So there can be a few things that go on. You get a new client and it's shiny and people are tired of working on Tide or whatever the, <laughs> the business <What>? is. <laughs> and so everyone wants to run to the new project. And... I think there can be benefit, like you said, Anne, and not and letting people think about something new, but ultimately it always distracted from those clients. And those were often the bread and butter clients. And so that's where you would see something like, well, the ideas got stale or nothing was ever new anymore. And yes, I think there's onus on the client side for that of, well, you asked for innovative ideas the past 13 times and you never took any of them. So why would we do that again? Okay, yeah. I, I get that. But if we look at the agency side of things, it's, oh, it's new and shiny or there's a problem child in the mix and we're throwing all of our you know, senior leadership at that, trying to fix that relationship. But over here, we have this one that hums along and they always get the short end of the stick, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that infrastructure-wise, there are a lot of challenges on the agency side, but ultimately it's relationship, communication, and the ability to actually work together effectively, which means honest, open communication and receptivity on both sides. And when that did not happen, that's where the firing started. Yep. I think all those are right on. Uh, all those are right on. Um, because that dynamic is so important. And the one thing I'll just put a cap on what you were saying with regards to the the delivering and, and making sure that you're structuring it well so that people feel motivated is that the goal or what success looks like, even though you want to define that for your work specifically, as a client, you should be setting that 
goal to be something that everybody needs to work together in order to deliver. When you set your goals too narrowly and it's based on like what one agency feels like they need to deliver and that's totally in their wheelhouse, they don't feel a need for everybody else. So they go and they kind of go off on their their piece of pie and they figure everybody else is just kind of icing on the cake. So make sure as you're setting up your goals that you're doing so intentionally with the motivation of getting everybody to see success in a way that requires everybody in order to do that. Yep. All right. Our second in the trenches. We are really struggling with getting the client to pay what we feel we are worth. Any suggestions? And I'm going to throw this one to April. (laughs) Yep. This is a tough one for sure. Um, So one of the things that's a more of a tactical thing, but we have seen so much success is in providing a tiered proposal. And to the points that I have been making throughout this episode, I think that what this does is it doesn't put the client on the defensive. They know inherently that we're going to come and try to get them to spend the most money possible. Mm -hmm. What the tiered proposal does is a couple of things. One, it shows flexibility in spend. Two, it offers a discussion or gives an opportunity for a discussion around decision making and how to think through the different tiers with a recommendation, of course, from us on the agency side, but ultimately with that decision making power in the hands of the client so that they can say, you know what, we'd love to do all of this. As a business, we can't do that. Therefore, we see what the different options are and we're going to make some decisions And then we also have a potential roadmap for the future. So we look smart of what we might be able to do and how we might be able to enhance, trade some things out, et cetera, et cetera. The other piece is making sure that every line item is tied to an actionable deliverable, even if you're going to do other things surrounding that deliverable. So the client wants to know what's in it for them. What are they going to get? Mm -hmm. If you say you have a six-week immersion with no deliverable other than a report, that doesn't always mean a lot. Especially with a big line item. Especially with a big number with it, right. And so if you're going to do or offer that sort of immersion, you have to build it around an outcome that they're going to get as a result of it. And what that might be, you know, is something like, okay, we're going to do this learning phase, et cetera, et cetera, but that's going to give us the brand story and the character and recommendations on what you should do with your website and what four collateral pieces you should be doing, things where they can start to see, again, oh, I'm going to have a plan coming out of this and some things that I'm going to get from it. Unfortunately, and this makes me sad because it's such an imperative tool on the agency side, account management should not be called out as something separate. It is a support function. It's a facilitation function. Even if you go the route in your agency of having strategic account folks, it's not something that is inherently valued by the client because historically the way it's set up is it's more of an admin function. And so if they think that they're paying for everything, yeah, that they're paying a premium for something that really isn't providing, again, a direct benefit to them. It's a benefit to your team versus them, even though I would argue it goes both ways. It's just the perception is reality type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that is a line item is something that was always either redlined out or diminished considerably or whatever when it was listed in a proposal. 
it's really hard to also say, well, what's account management and what's your work on my business? Yeah. Right. So yeah. it was always like that that really gray line. Yeah. And it always felt like a catch all of like, well, if we don't feel like we're making enough money on this, well, we'll just pull it from here kind of thing. Yep. Yep. The other thing is nickel and diming. This is also really tricky. It can be very hard to scope, especially if you're scoping an entire year's worth of work and you're trying to be specific about deliverables and you're trying to build a plan mm -hmm. before you're really in it. I mean, this is a very, very hard thing to do. But on the other side of this, it's you don't want to always be going with a change order for more money every time that there's one more round of revisions or, you know, mm -hmm. they add on one more application. You have to at least provide enough thought for yourself of, okay, where do we really need to land here? And if these things happen, where can we cover it? And it's not padding. It's just more like, all right, I'm taking my best guess that the website's going to be this and the direct mailer is going to be this. Well, all of a sudden the website's a little bit lower and the direct mailer turns into a four-page document. You have to have some flexibility in the proposal, even though you're giving really overt deliverables, to be able to manage that on the agency side instead of always going back to the client and asking for more money. And then the final thing I'll say, which this also died with the Mad Men era, I feel like, is big ranges with no criteria. So yeah. we're going to do all your campaigns for the year for $1.2 million. That may have been ex acceptable <laughs> before. Sorry, guys, not so much anymore. More detail, the better. And also, I think this does come up actually sometimes with out-of-pocket things. So like if you don't know how much it's going to cost to actually produce a commercial, for example, this was always one where we're like, we're going to provide some ranges, but depending on which concept, we yeah. literally have no idea what it's going to take until the concept is developed, which we can't do until we get all this other stuff done. That's way more acceptable in the industry. It's also a pass-through cost. So, right. you know, we're on the agency side, you're not marking up building the sets, and or you shouldn't be. Sorry if you are, but you shouldn't be. Um, or, oh, hey, we're going to need six kid actors for this particular spot, right? Those types of situations, clients understand better. But really, at the end of the day, they sign on for the budget. It's yours to manage, and you have to be able to do so effectively, provide the deliverables outlined, and show results. Yeah, I think those are all really important for that. Just to keep in mind as you're setting up your your scopes and your proposals is that you need to really take into account the sophistication of your client. Yeah. I mean, this is, I know I personally have gotten burnt before where it's like, I clearly called out that these things mm -hmm. were not included, but their sophistication or the understanding what the work was wasn't at the same level as mine. And even though I explained it a million times. And you're speaking from the agency side now. I'm speaking no from the agency the side. So, yeah, yep. I'm speaking from the agency side. And even though I, I, I shared it you know, a million times, they still came back and they're like, what do you mean that's not included? I'm like, mm -hmm. it says it right here that's not included. But we didn't understand that that was what that was. And I was like, oh, okay. So make sure you keep that in mind because that's going to be really helpful when you set those up. But I like the strategies of making sure too that if you don't know what it's going to be, putting a range, but then mm -hmm. saying, okay, we're going to scope this outside once we know where we're going to go. There's no way of having a, you know, a, a magic ball or crystal ball and being able to determine what the client's going to choose. So mm -hmm. that is, that's really smart. But I think just a couple of rules of thumb here too is like, don't do the same work for less money unless you have a clear rationale with the client. All right. We say this a lot of times is that don't undermine your value. 
you can scope it accordingly. You know, if they said, well, you know, um, we really can't spend 30 grand for that work. We only have 25. It's like, okay, well, what can we take off? Yep. But having a tier proposal helps you kind of range it a little bit more strategically than just to be like, okay, let's make this an arbitrary conversation. Yep. And remember that you're only worth what someone is willing to pay. If you're continuing to struggle, you may need to do some benchmarking to ensure your price right for your expertise and experience. Sometimes this is another one that's really hard to swallow, but you may have to invest more than you want, especially if you're just getting off the ground or if you don't have as many uh, as many case studies in those areas or much experience in those areas and it's a new place for you. You have to keep those things in mind. And even if somebody's getting paid a way lot more than you are, there's probably a reason for that. And I think this goes to the point, too, that you said earlier, April, or you called me on, is that make sure you're using the same language as mm-hmm. your client, all right? Mm-hmm. What we think is one thing, they may totally internalize as something else. Sometimes using examples of what these deliverables actually look like helps um, without having to you know, do the work for them. So maybe you, you have a template or maybe you use somebody else's and you kind of black things out. But it helps them to understand what exactly they're getting. One example is like me and April always have to explain brand story. <laughs> yep. We always have to explain brand story. And sometimes we explain it in the context of like, this is like the who we are part of mm-hmm. your of your web page. And I'm like, oh, okay, got it. But we do it in the context of making sure it's a foundation for everything. So you can take that and you can apply to everything. Oh, okay, now I got it. Mm-hmm. So think of ways that you can actually draw the connections in the language so that you can be aligned with what the deliverables look like, with what success looks like, because that's going to be really important. Yep, all of that. All right, the third in the trenches question. Now that you're on the agency side, what do you wish you appreciated more when on the client side? And this one I definitely really like. All right. So this is Anne and being a little bit more humble. And this usually gets a ton of laughs from everybody who knows me. And I'm sure April as well. All right. So the first one is being clear on what I really want. I realize now how frustrating it can be when the clients profess to want one thing. But after you share work that clearly delivers that, they second guess or they question it. Mm hmm. All right. So this is the demotivation point. This is definitely the demotivation point. And some of it I understand because some of it, like being on the client side, it's like, oh, like I don't really know what I want yet, but I'm trying to put enough specificity around it to try to generate insight, thoughts, you know, or anything that's going to help kind of like clarify that in my head a little bit. That's not necessarily fair for the agency, but that is a big like just indicator when you get a very open ended brief, it's a very big indicator that the client doesn't necessarily know what they're looking for. So just be prepared for that so that you can have those specific conversations or you can scope your work, internal work, very, very um, differently to the point that we were making before where it's like, all right, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to come back with some initial thought starter ideas. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to spend three months developing these ideas to the full gamut because I don't know if they know what they're really looking for yet. So you might have to adjust on the other side, but I can totally appreciate now that sometimes when we set briefs, especially we say we're sending them so we don't want to halter creativity, but what we're really saying is we don't really know what we want yet. (laughs) Okay, so there's that one. The next is humility. And like I said, clients are definitely getting savvier, but professing to understand how to do things better than someone who's in it every day um, feels a little misplaced. (laughs) 
Um, I definitely would have argued less and trusted more, for sure, without a doubt. I mean, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have added my thoughts or asked for collaboration or been in the work with them. I mean, those things are to the point that we were just making help to, I think, process through the work faster, more efficiently, more collaboratively. But I would have been a little bit more open to how to solve for them. Mm -hmm. So I would say that is a big one. I also understand just how difficult it is to make the client happy without losing your soul and sanity in the process. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Now, luckily, you know, April and I have picked really good clients. And so I haven't felt this as much, but some in the early parts of our agency, we did just kind of take the work that kind of came flowing to us. And we learned a lot about Mm -hmm. the kind of clients that we like. Um, and how that can really just kind of like suck a lot of the energy out of you. Now, I do think on the client side, I was pretty consistent and I really prized in my relationships with my agency. I I didn't necessarily do as good of a job as I could um, in really fostering those. I made a lot of these mistakes, honestly. And I also had really high expectations that may or may not have been unreasonable and unneeded. So I see that now. Um, And so if I could tell myself back then, I would say, you know what, like, do a little bit more test and learning, listen a little bit more, try to understand a little bit better, see it from their side. And yeah, I think that would have let them be a little bit more who they are, and then us flow a little bit more efficiently and collaboratively. Yeah. And on the other hand, I'll give what I wish clients understood more about us from my (laughs) perspective. Fair. Um, But it links kind of to what Anne just said, right? Anne is in the unique position that she's been on both sides. Yeah. And I had a woman that worked for me that was my client and came to work for me at the last agency I was at. And without a doubt, she provided insight that someone that had not been in that unique position could never provide. And so back to my comment about the dynamic shift from the Mad Men era where the agency became more of the vendor to the client, I do think sometimes the one-sidedness comes from the client not acknowledging or knowing or learning how we make money as a business And what it takes for us to do the work they're asking for on their behalf. And so that's the uphill battle that I think just starts from the very beginning. And the ones that really and truly understand it and acknowledge it are the ones that you can effectively negotiate with to a place Mm -hmm. where both sides are happy. But I just don't think that that happens enough. And to the point of us at Forthright People having really good clients, we had a situation recently, and it's a client of ours, but also a very good friend of mine. And so she knows a lot about my industry because we've talked about it for Mm -hmm. all the years that I've been in the industry and then been in my own business. And so We'd been doing work for them at a certain price range for a period of time, and that was no issue. We had agreed upon that, whatever. Well, a different team came to us to do some slightly different work, and the price tag went up substantially. And so I had the conversation with 
you know, her um, direct report about why. And there was a lot we didn't know and that we were doing a rush job and that it was going to take a considerable amount of my investment and my designers during a holiday. And they were in a bit of a crunch. And I said, look, let's just align on this price if we can. And if we come in lower than that, I will let you know. And so then I was talking to my friend and client about something else, and that came up. And I said, well, why didn't you call me? And she said, well, I kind of was sticker shocked, but then I thought about the fact that this is not this is something where we have a lot of intellectual property, but we don't have the time or ability to give that to you. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have to learn as part of this project. And I also appreciate that you said if you come in under, if it, if it goes faster than you think, you'll let us know. It caused me to take a step back because there's just been so few times where that happens. And on the other side, we did come in under budget, which I was quite proud of. We mastered that project very quickly. (laughs) But I appreciated that she trusted me so much and realized where my mindset was that she didn't even bother to call. While I was also appreciating this was going to be tough and I wasn't going to charge her that amount of money if I didn't have to, if we got there faster. So like, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. That give and take does not often exist. And then you fight so much on the price that then the agency's undercut, but then you get mad if you don't get the team or the work you want or whatever. So I just think that there could be a lot more education, but also appreciation from the clients in many cases. And I realize that's a blanket statement, but I do think that's an outage. And I think it's a transparency, right? Especially on very difficult conversations like budget. Yep. Oh, it's oh. always the worst. Budget and timing. Yes. All right. Our fourth and final in the trenches question. All of this is great info from when you are already in the door. What are the biggest mistakes you have seen agencies make in trying to pitch you work? <laughs> all right. So this honestly could be an episode all in itself. It really could. Yeah. But let me try to pull out some of the key ones. So first, they couldn't articulate within their case studies how they built the business. Like I said before, I wasn't necessarily looking for numbers per se, because I know a lot of times agencies can't share the exact numbers for their other clients. But I was looking for an understanding that they knew what success looked like in regards to translating what their deliverables were to the impact on the business. Like what I I always say about the impressions, right? When you you deliver a billion impressions, that's great. But what does a billion impressions mean for my business? Even if they couldn't exactly state, well, they raised the business two times, three times, they could say, We did this, and that was an indicator of business growth, and our clients were very happy. The next is inflated results with no rational explanation or trying to slide one past me (laughs) thinking that I don't know any better. All right? So like I said, do not assume your clients are stupid. All right? You might have to educate them a little bit. You may have to put it in a context when using language that they can relate to. But don't try to slide one past them. If I could sense that and I could tease that out, it was a, a, a showstopper for me. Professing to do everything but not providing an expert to talk through it in order to discuss further. So this is how we find out if you really can do everything that you say you can do, right? If you say, I can do social media, and I was like, oh, really? Okay, fantastic. Who is your social media expert? And they like, um, oh, it's so-and-so. And then I'm like, okay, that would be great. Let's, let's talk to so-and-so and kind of see what they would do here. And then they don't provide so-and-so. Right. That is like, you know, just don't try to, again, treat your clients like they're stupid. There's too much upfront of all about them versus the impact they have on their clients. So this was something that I 
gave very, very clear feedback on all of my agency partners. <laughs> and I actually did some consulting business on this after I left P&G. I'm like, you guys, like, we don't need five or six slides about how you're the best thing since sliced bread. We need a couple of slides for you to say who you are and how you're different. And then why do you want us? Like, then why do you want us is like what we're going to do for your business. Remember, those are the three brand questions. That is what you need to focus on so that they understand the impact you're going to have on them. And I will, I mean, I will totally echo this. This drove me completely crazy. And I would always feel like I was the one like, you guys, everybody has this spiel. Yeah, yeah, but we're different. Like, but that's not the case. And really... I was more a fan of if we could get it to happen for the client to in real time set up the challenges they were having. We would have a bunch of stuff to answer the questions, yeah. But to be able to start from that perspective, and that was a differentiator when we were when I was able to convince the teams that that was what we were going to do. But I think it's hard again, depending on who you send into the pitches, depending on the savviness of the team, depending on the ability to go back and forth in a meeting. That can be a little bit difficult, but. I think that the most success comes from that. If And then in addition to that, or if you really want to do the upfront piece, I think it's more what we know about you and what we are going to want to know more about and some thought starters of things we're seeing from our perspective as an agency goes a longer way than 25 setup slides that we have offices here. And here's our logo quilt of 100 different clients and, you know, those types of things that just aren't as helpful or relevant to the client. Yeah, because they probably already know that. That's why you're there. That's why you have a website. (laughs) That's why why you, oh, I'll, I'll make a knock at a client here. That's why you already filled out the 65 page RFP before you got to this round. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Spoiler alert for Fair my enough, I, my response we, to this episode. When we ask you to do the work and then just for the right to actually come and pitch it. Yeah. 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 yeah I like that one too. <laughs> um, the, another one is um, they just talked to the highest ranking people in the room. Um, even if that was me, yeah. even if I was the highest ranking person in the room, if they weren't talking to the rest of my team, making mm-hmm. eye contact, I knew I was going to have trouble with the circumventing thing. Yep. yep. It was a, Huge, huge red flag for me. Yep. And this go- this next one goes to what you just said, which is fail to share true insight of how they're going to make me, the team, and the business oh, better. Sorry. No, but that Pre-empted. was good. <laughs> but no, that was good. Because it, at least I'm not understanding the business, and at least I'm not understanding the industry, or that the fact that you're there to service the business, mm-hmm. not just promote yourself. Or at the very least, if we could just go, like, I remember we did this pot and pan one. We'd never worked for a brand like that before. We were honest about that. But we yeah. said, hey, as someone who's never done work in this space, we went to the store and we compared and here's some things that we saw. They were super appreciative because as newbies, that was an opportunity that they didn't get very often. Yeah, exactly. And then finally, fails ask questions that lead to partnership, like things like, how can we make your lives better? Those sorts of things are, are really good indicators that this person or this agency is in it in order to be a partner with me, mm-hmm. in order to be able to work again as extensions of myself. And that is going to be like a key indicator that we're going to work well together. All right. And for me, I'll just give some of them peek behind the curtain, things that happen that I think the clients probably actually know about and can tell. But what made me mad, and I think there were a lot of broken things about the pitch process, especially when I was in kind of like the middle part of my career and it was transitioning to a new way of doing things. But here's mine. Lack of proper preparation, a.k.a. doing the presentation for the meeting on the plane ride or car ride over. Bringing too many, (laughs) bringing too many, but often the wrong people 
and giving in to whatever the client said they needed because the people in the room weren't the ones to actually answer the questions. Really listening to what the client was saying versus trying to impose our we know better approach and or faking it with the team we were bringing or tapping team members from other offices just to have bodies that we thought would show culture and then failing to show said culture because none of us actually knew each other or had ever worked together. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, taking it all too seriously, my thing, and I still hold to this today, If in the first meeting I ever have with a client, I can make them laugh, 90% of the time, I believe I get work from that client. And it's because it's taking the pressure off. It's being human. It's being who I am as a person, even if it's self-deprecating or I'm giving some anecdote that's just funny. That, to me, is the best thing I personally can do as part of that team. And I feel like all this other stuff just becomes noise and nonsense. Those were funny. (laughs) I've been there. All right. And our third and final segment is now what we're calling Marketing Smarts Moment. Um, It may or may not have anything to do with the topic at hand, but it's something that we've been seeing recently in wherever we happen to be that we thought might be a very interesting thing to share with you guys. So I'm going to give you a Marketing Smart Moment. This one happened last week. I was traveling for uh, uh, doing a keynote and I happened to be in Minneapolis airport and I happened to walk by and I looked to my right and there was this chiropractic kiosk at the airport. And I looked at it. I took a picture of it. And I'm like, is this a good idea? So I'm hoping that April is going to provide some perspective on this as we kind of go through this because I'm still not quite sure. But I think I, I, I have a thought. So as I started processing through this, I was like, OK, well, you know, the problem solution is right on, right? You know, when you're traveling, especially if you're traveling frequently, you get some of those aches, you get some of those pains, you know, sitting cramped up in the airplane or just like on those uncomfortable seats in the airport. I could see how like a you would need a chiropractor in order to deal with that. And actually, you know, I have a chiropractor that I go see on a monthly basis for things just like that. But that actually led me to my second question, which was, is this their target consumer that's walking through the airport? So someone, if you're you know, who knows what it's like to go to a chiropractor knows it's actually a very like intimate experience. Like this guy or girl is like laying on your body, doing (laughs) things and manipulating your body that like, well, if you're in a different context could be seen as something else. But like, it takes a lot of trust. (laughs) I'm being honest. It, it, It takes a lot of trust to let somebody do that to you. So if I was a first timer, even if I was in a really, you know, didn't feel good, I'm like, is this something that I would go to? This like stand up kiosk in an airport. And I'm like, I got to think kind of no, because especially since it was open on both sides, like so anybody can come and buy and see this person like laying on me doing whatever that they were doing in order to manipulate my spine. So I don't think it's an impromptu stop in. Now, what if I already know about chiropractors and I go see one? then I'm probably going to actually go see the one that I go see because, again, I don't know if I trust anybody else to do that to me. And even if it's a simple manipulation, I'm just, I don't know. If they do it wrong or if they don't understand my body, it could lead to some some very big discomforts. And besides that, the price was actually kind of high. It was like, I think, $45 for justice, like one time manipulation. So for a trial or point of entry, it seemed a little high for me. And then just having like the time to actually do it. So am I going to have time as I'm running from gate A to gate B? Maybe depending if I have a long enough layover, but I don't know. 
overall, I was just kind of thinking like, I'm not sure that that is like the best idea in order to extend my business and, and market my business trying to get in new clients. I don't know. What do you think, April? So I actually have, and I did not know you were going to put this on here until I read the episode, but I have a very strong visceral response to this. I hate this. I think it is a terrible <laughs> idea. I also think it is very weird, even just like the neck massages, whether in airports or in the yeah. mall. I get the reason why, and actually my husband will periodically like have one of those massages. It grosses me out from an OCD perspective. I am not comfortable with people I don't know touching me. And I just think it's like very jarring when you're in an environment where, to me, I agree, that's a more intimate one-on-one, you know the person experience. Or even if you're getting a massage by not a regular masseuse, you're in a private room with that person. Now, on the other side, I will say when nail salons started popping up, I thought that was a great idea. Because as someone who loves to get my nails done, and I know I'm on the other side out of my mouth because I had to get over the OCD-ness and realize Uh that's me. But there were many, many times when I was traveling all the time for work that I wouldn't have time to get my nails done. And honestly, all through the presentations, all I could think about was the fact that my nails were not done. Yeah, And so that, to me, leans into a more acceptable place and acceptable service and something that even if you get like an express mani, right? If If you're not into or like me, comfortable with the whole experience, you can get your nails painted professionally in the 20 minutes and feel more polished for your next leg. So, yeah. yeah, It's much easier to gauge quality from that standpoint, I think. Exactly. And you don't have some nail tech laying all over you trying to manipulate. Yes, all of that. So, yeah, Yeah. hate it. All right, well, that's a very (laughs) strong opinion. (laughs) Thanks, April. I mean, that's me being me. So I I like it. I like it. So just to recap our four business-limiting mistakes agencies make, the first is undermining their client partner. Nothing leads to dysfunctionality faster than growing over the head of your client partner. Second is you fail to learn the client's business. I've always said the best agencies work as an extension of myself, which means they understand the business to the extent that they can proactively work within it. The third is they don't work well with other agencies. Even if you're the AOR, failure to recognize the value of other agencies who are also on the business creates a lot of drama internally for your client partner. Finally, take feedback too personally. Agencies should be invested in the work, but detached enough to accept feedback. And with that, we'll say go and exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. We can help you become a savvier marketer through coaching or training you and your team or doing the work on your behalf. Please also help us grow the podcast by rating and reviewing on your player of choice and sharing with at least one person. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.